So I'm here with Rosalind Picard, the founder and director of Affective Computer Research Group at MIT's Media Lab. Thank you, Rosalind. Pleasure. Thank Pleasure. you for being with us. Um, I guess from a layman's perspective, when I look at you know the, your work, I would I would say that it revolves around the quantifying of the human emotional experience and applying that to the creation in the field of science, computers, perhaps artificial intelligence, but that's just from my perspective. How do you describe your work in terms of what you're seeking to, uh, what needs your research is fulfilling, what you're hoping to find and discover? Hmm. It's interesting. Because I'm an engineer by training, a lot of the tools we've brought to emotion are about quantifying it. But I'd say the bigger goal is not to produce uh, quantification mm-hmm. of our feelings. It's to show respect for human feelings. It's to make them something that we can uh, treat the same way when we're interacting through technology, the same way we do when we interact Mm face-to-face. So it's putting them back into the interaction in a deliberate way that I hope just gets them a lot more uh, respect. Mm -hmm. In terms of your emotions, your feelings, it's something that's almost... It's the old Star Trek conundrum, right? I mean, it's sort of quant- <laughs> with a name that, like Picard. Isn't feelings and, and, and emotions just is it opposite of logic? I mean, it seems like an interesting dichotomy here. You know, I talked to Leonard Nimoy when he was still alive about this. He uh, he actually his Spock character actually had emotion, and that was good science because even if you want to appear unemotional, you need emotion inside to make good decisions. That's mm-hmm. what we understand about the role that emotion plays in our brains. It's actually really important that it be there uh, biasing you know, what you're choosing to do and helping you figure out what matters mm-hmm. most and what's most important. And let's just talk about the applications for some of this work for effective computing. First of all, what do you, what do you, did you coin the term? Is that? Yes, I coined the term. Okay. So tell us, you know, for people who might not be familiar, what, what you mean when you say affective computing and, and, Yeah, affective with an A, and initially I thought of it as including all of emotion and also some things that are not necessarily positive or negative, but they seem affective, like motivation and Mm -hmm. attention and interest. So affective is a bigger word than emotional, and it didn't carry the negative emotional baggage. (laughs) Our uh, director of our lab at the time said, oh, affective, that's nicely confused with effective. (laughs) And you started your work when here at the Media Lab? This was in, I joined the faculty in 91, Mm -hmm. and I was working on pretty much just hardcore machine learning computer vision problems, Mm -hmm. and started recognizing that emotion played an important role in that in the mid-90s, but I didn't want to be associated with emotion. So I kept, uh, you know, digging into it, trying to find a way around it, or find somebody else to work on it. (laughs) Finally, I thought, okay, I'll write a book and get other people to work on it. Uh, and it was actually hard to do the work in a way that people would actually take it seriously and, and build momentum. Mm-hmm. So I started to build out some examples of what it would look like to do work on it and give a lot of talks about why I thought it was actually an important direction for building intelligent interaction and intelligent AI and so forth for the future. Uh, and gradually it started to go from something where people whispered behind my back at conferences saying, you know, she used to do serious work, right. to can I borrow your data? This is really cool. All right. And, and so, I mean, I, I was looking at the, in the sort of preface of the, the forward of the book you wrote and talking about applying 
emotions or, or teaching computers how to have emotions or, or understand emotions? Is that is that still is that part of the yeah? And I mean, initially AI was just about understanding what you're saying. Um, you know, whether you're walking, whether you're a human being, whether you're a dog or a cat, what's on the what's coming in the camera. It was all about sort of the who, what, when, where, and not about the how. Mm -hmm. um, nobody was looking at how you were saying something right. or whether or not the computer's intelligence was actually annoying to you uh, or whether you were frustrated or whether you were bored. And I thought, gee, I think some of these things may be more important than, you know, whether two plus two equals four. Mm -hmm. And, I mean, so is I guess it's a, is it about sort of figuring out um, people's tells? I mean, uh, you know, the old poker trick where you can figure out somebody's <laughs> bluffing or not. You or... know, people always want to know: can you can you do better deception detection? Can you better lie detection? The things we measure are actually the signals used for telling deception, mm -hmm. um, but they don't alone tell you about deception. You have to use them with a structured context mm -hmm. where you triangulate in on mm -hmm. whether or not these are able to be a appropriately interpreted as deception. Um, we have chosen to focus on measuring things that enable people to communicate what they want to communicate. Mm -hmm. And usually that's, uh, in the case of technology, frustration, confusion, <laughs> annoyance, right. and occasionally interest and delight. So is that so the computer understands that it's if it's communicating with you, it doesn't... It, it's, you're not understanding it and you're getting frustrated, so perhaps yeah. it will try a different approach? Yeah, a lot of people okay. have wanted the computer to feel their pain, uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, to, to, or the engineers behind it to recognize that, right. look, these extra 25 features you added here are not giving me a better experience, right? right. You know, look at how annoyed I am. Like, make this better. Mm. I mean, I guess I'd have to ask, why, why, do you, why do you think it's so important to quantify emotions or emotional response rather than... And again, the goal is not quantification. The goal okay. is um, recognizing that people's emotions signal what matters. Okay. And if you really want to understand what matters to people, you need to be able to interpret if they're pleased or displeased, mm -hmm. if they're bored or interested, if you've annoyed them, or if all's going well. And if you are blinded to that information, whether from vision or audition or autism or nonverbal learning disability, uh, then you're at a handicap. Mm -hmm. You're You really... I mean, think about how do you know if your boss is pleased or displeased, if you should keep doing what you're doing or change it up? Mm -hmm. Well, you read their affect. And right. if you can't read that, you're likely to do the wrong thing. Right. So the obvious thing that jumps out right away is autism, right? Because yeah. they have yeah. autistic people have an inability yes. to read social signals or to understand or connect on an emotional level. Mm -hmm. um, in, in your research, when did you start looking at that? We were starting to teach computers how to recognize emotion when a friend came in to borrow a map for a bike trip, and he said, what are you doing? And I mm -hmm. explained we were teaching computers to recognize emotion, and he said, what about helping my brother? <laughs> right. And I said, tell me about your brother. And I started to learn about autism. The thinking was that people on the autism spectrum had difficulty recognizing other people's emotions, and that is true for many of them, um, but it's not true for all of them. Some mm -hmm. of them are quite good at recognizing some other people's emotions. Um, one of the things we learned as we then started to adapt our technology to help people on the autism spectrum was that many of them said, you know, Roz, you think we're the ones who have trouble recognizing emotion, <laughs> but, you know, actually you guys have trouble recognizing our emotion, mm -hmm. too. I tried not to take this too personally, <laughs> um, but they were speaking the truth. They are often misunderstood. 
And this actually led to us um, rethinking a lot of our work and starting to dig out of our wearable computing sensors that a person with autism could wear to help somebody else understand their emotion. Right. And so is that the where you springboard into the wearables? Yeah. Was so that we, the first sort of Well, we had done some there? wearables back in the early 90s. We, I'm one of the founders of the original IEEE Technical Committee on Wearables. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we had to explain to people how to spell the word wearables in the right. early days. Kind of, I laugh, you know, writing and listening on the radio these days, and it's a common term now. But at yeah. the time, people were like, why are you calling this wearable computing? You know, WC, that's a really bad acronym, you know, yeah. for, a, for a field. Uh, obviously, the toilets and you know. Yeah. <laughs> but we called it wearables, and we were building wearables... Uh, really just because we thought it was kind of interesting to wear our computing and have it on us all the time. This was well before smartphones. You know, mm-hmm. we had great big wireless transponders. Sure. You know, we plugged in and half of the wearable was a was a PC stuffed in your backpack. But we, and it's amazing, all that can be done in a wristband now. Yeah. Um, but through that, we learned that you could read the physiology of the wearer and use that to more intelligently process the video and the other contextual data we were mm-hmm. getting. Mm-hmm. So instead of playing back, you know, 14 hours of video my student collected from his wear cam, Steve Mann, a real pioneer in wearables, uh, was my student on this, I could fast forward to the bits that made Steve most excited mm-hmm. physiologically. Like, where did his heart speed up? Where did right. his skin conductance go up? And you know, most of the day he's just looking at the computer and it's kind of boring screenshots. Right. But when his physiology shot up with emotion, I could say, what happened here? That's an interesting moment. Right. So you're, you know, they say, I guess, the, um, the eyes are the window to the soul. But, I mean, it seems like the skin is a lot more perceptive than we realize. Yeah, we had no idea what we were going to find. I thought... You know, hey, we're measuring this sweat response, right? Mm -hmm. You know, you get sweaty when you get nervous. The skin conductance goes up. And we found, you know, other people had already shown, you know, 100 years earlier, it goes up sensitively with emotion. So we built, and usually they measured it with wires and gelled electrodes on your fingers. Uh, We decided it would be interesting to get it in daily life. So we Mm -hmm. built the first sensor that I know of that let you collect it unobtrusively as you went about your daily life. And this became... A whole series of wristbands that we've developed from the original ICOM at MIT to the Affective Acu sensor to today the Empatica E4 and Embrace. And these wristbands uh, originally were just picking up these small perspiration changes that go up with excitement. But then we learned that they pick up a lot more that is much more exciting than just if you're sweaty or not. So let, let's go to skin conductiveness. What what do we mean when we say that? Yeah, when you um, when you put a very safe, tiny electrical current across the surface of the skin, you can measure if it's increasing or decreasing based on uh, the um, amount of sweat that's produced, not just on the surface of the skin, but underneath mm-hmm. the skin. So it turns out that when you're when certain deep regions of your brain are activated, uh, these are regions involved in memory, emotion, and attention, and they may not even show up on an EEG on mm. the surface. They're deep in the brain. When they're activated, they activate the sweat glands, and they do so at a level below the surface of the skin. Mm. And as that gland starts to fill, even when the surface of your skin is still dry, you can measure a change in this current across the top of the skin. So this is even before, say, you get nervous and your palms start sweating. Even before your palms sweat. 
Okay. You, you don't feel any difference on the surface, right. and we can measure a difference when these regions are activated. And this is and is this a quicker tell than even, say, a rising heart rate or something like that? Yeah, it turns out to be more interesting than rising heart rate. Heart, heart rate goes up with a lot of things. Skin conductance does too, but heart rate goes up when you inhale, mm-hmm. even more than when there's a small emotional change. Okay. Um, it goes up when you stand up. Uh, so heart rate is constantly changing with each breath. Skin conductance is a bit more stable. But if something grabs your attention or is emotionally significant to you, then usually within uh, one to three seconds after that, the skin conductance will, mm. will jump up. What, talk to me about the, the, that kind of moment when you realize this. Uh, were you, it was an exciting moment for you? I mean, were you, did, well, was there an aha moment there? Or, or? <laughs> well, actually, it was an embarrassing moment. <laughs> we, we knew it worked on the fingers. Right. Um, one day, we'd done this big event measuring it from the palm of the hand and mapping it to glowing LEDs for a giant audience over in Kresge Auditorium. And after the event, people were pretty jazzed about it because uh, we had showed that the audience glowed brightly when there was a live demonstration on stage or a new person came on stage or there was some exciting moment. Um, and we showed that um, every time... That regularly through the day, the audience uh, went very dim, uh, decaying exponential in the brightness of that skin conductance LED. Uh, and that usually happened with PowerPoint. <laughs> so they, got, they had a low emotional response right. to PowerPoint. Right. They, they were not <laughs> activated. Right. Um, so we, we learned how to adjust presentations to keep you know kicking the audience level up um, while really? giving them occasional breaks. So afterwards, one of the executives in Swatch came by my office and said, this was really fun. This was really interesting. Will it work on the wrist? Mm-hmm. And I said, no, no, no. The theory is that it only works on the palms and the soles of the feet. And I, and I grabbed our palm uh, LED band and I slapped it on my wrist to, to show us that it, it won't work because mm-hmm. all the theory for you know 50 plus years said it won't work. I slapped it on my wrist and it worked. Mm-hmm. And I went, oh. <laughs> so the first moment was a little embarrassing. Um, after that, I realized, you know, we need to, like, I sort of tabled it for a while, to be honest with you, because we were doing other things, um, combining that data with other channels, the face, the voice, a lot of other stuff. Um, but later, when the student came in my office and said, can you help my brother? And somebody else said, uh, actually, it was Amanda Bag said, you guys don't understand us as well as you know, as you should. I said, you know, well, what if we built a sensor, if we dragged this thing out and built a version that you could wear in everyday life mm-hmm. and you could control if you broadcast that information to somebody you trust or if you just learned about it yourself uh, and you could get a, a private new way to see outwardly what's going on inwardly with this important aspect of emotional stress. And so this is sort of the birth of the gen- the <clears throat> product that eventually become spun out to Afrativa yeah, and then later exactly. Patica. Yeah, we, we built it. We tested it. It was it worked. People started asking us for it. My mm-hmm. students were complaining on Monday they couldn't get their thesis done because they were building these for other people over right. the weekend. And I said, okay, okay, we have to get this out of the media lab and right. off to some place that can handle the demand. So it's a wristband that can detect before even you know it that, say, you're stressed or you're uh, feeling a certain... For, for many people, it's before they know it. They, a lot of people are what's called alexithymic. They can't really feel their stress increasing gradually, mm-hmm. um, not until it overtakes them. And right. then they have a meltdown and it's too late. Uh, so many people on the autism spectrum said, could you build me the band that tells me when my levels are increasing before I lose control? Right. And, and, it, and it would tell them how? 
Yeah, what it allows you to do, or, or an observer, if you share the information with somebody, say you, you videotape your experience or you, or you know exactly where you were when, and you look at this level. Um, for example, we were looking at this with little babies. They'd start crying here after feeding, mm-hmm. and you'd wonder if it was something that happened after they fed. But when you go back and look at the data and see that it started in the middle over here, right. you, you figure actually the cause of it had to start much sooner, mm-hmm. right? So it allows you to see, gosh, the kid's level started to go up when he first entered the room where Aunt Susie is, (laughs) not later when Jack came in, right? And so this helps them identify this. And and is the belief that if you can identify it, you can help correct it or just help reduce it or... Yeah, this... Think of it as a new debugging tool, but it mm-hmm. and it's taking something that used to be hidden and making it observable. Mm-hmm. It's not necessarily telling you what the right thing to do with right. that information is. You still have to develop intelligence around it, um, but it's an augmenting device for human intelligence that helps us better understand ourselves and better understand another person who may, in particular, be non-speaking or may have atypical ways of showing what's mm-hmm. going on inside. And I, I know that... Uh, it was used for PTSD too. It's, it's uh, the or device that's been used. selected. Yeah, it's being used in the military PTSD trials mm-hmm. now. So it helps soldiers in the field recognize or uh, uh, symptoms of post-traumatic stress, or yeah, does it help? This, this is a research topic right now, so I okay. can't make claims until we complete the study. Okay, um, I can tell you some hypotheses. You know, we've we've seen uh, that certain kinds of anxiety and threat show up very oddly, on one side more than the other. Mm-hmm. At first, we thought the sensor was broken or not calibrated properly. Right. Um, but now we actually predict it. We've just published a paper on the theory of this uh, because we now know from our accidental findings um, in epilepsy and neurology that regions in deep in the right side of the brain actually map to the right side of this response, and mm-hmm. regions deep in the left map to the left. It's not contralateral like motor movement is. It's ipsilateral. Mm-hmm. Um, and thus, when you're this region in your brain called the right amygdala, um, uh, called the amygdala, that, and it's on both sides, when the right one in a right-handed person really starts to fire with fear and threat, we predict more of a response on your right wrist. Okay. Let's jump over to Empatica. Mm-hmm. Because this, this was almost, this company and the starting of it, it was almost a, an accidental discovery. Yeah. In some this, respects. This tell, came tell out of an accident. about that? Yes, one of the... Um, undergrads in my lab came by before the winter break and said, can I borrow one of your sensors over the break? My little brother has autism. He can't talk, and I want to see what's stressing him out. Mm-hmm. And I said, sure. In fact, you know, nobody's using these for studies over the break. Don't just take one, take two, because uh, they were hand-built back then, and the wires would easily break. So he takes two, and I thought he would use one and then the other when the first one broke. But no, he puts them both on both wrists at the same time, which I would have told him not to do. But in hindsight, I'm really glad he did. Uh, I'm back in my office at MIT looking at the data on my computer. And I see you know, this severely autistic boy has very typical uh, autonomic activation. And I thought, okay, so he's not wired funny with this. This day looked normal. Go to the next day. This day looks normal. Go to the next day. Normal, yawn, you know, go to the next day, my jaw drops. One wrist went absolutely through the roof, so high that I don't know how to create a signal that big. I thought it was broken. The other side wasn't responding, 
um, except it looked normal before and after this event with a nice sleep signature afterwards, has very clear patterns during sleep. And so I thought it wasn't working either. Darn it, you know, what on earth is going on? I tried, I won't take you through the whole experience. I tried as an electrical engineer to figure out what could have explained this weird data where it looked fine before and after. So he was asleep when this spike occurred? I, there was a clear sleep signature after the spike, but not at the time of it. So I finally gave up and I called the student at home a little sheepishly. Hi, this is your, you know, this is Roz. Sorry to bug you on on a holiday. Um, Hey, do you have any idea what happened to your little brother? And I gave him the exact date and time of the funny event. And he said, I don't know, I'll check the diary. And I thought, diary? MIT students kept a diary? You know, quick prayer, like, what are the odds that (laughs) he wrote down, you know, this particular moment? He comes back, he has exactly the date and time, and he says that was right before he had a grand mal seizure. Mm-hmm. And I thought, wow. Now, I knew, uh, I knew it was essentially nothing except some myths about seizures. And I quickly did a little research, realized another one of my students' dads is chief of neurosurgery over at Children's Hospital, mm-hmm. called him up, hi, Dr. Madsen, my name's Ross Picard. Right. Um, this is going to sound crazy, but is it possible that there could be a sympathetic nervous system surge? That's the part of the system that creates the skin conductance response, um, and that it could happen at the time we thought it was 20 minutes before a seizure. And he said, probably not 20 minutes before a seizure. Um, But he said, you know, it's curious. Uh, Sometimes patients before a seizure will describe how their hair stands on end on one arm. And I thought, on one arm, not both? And then I told him, you know, this is really weird because I only got the signal on one side and I didn't know what to make of that. And it looked like the senses were working fine before and after, but, you know, I can't explain this. And he said, actually, that could be caused by a seizure happening on one side of the brain um, in one of the regions that elicits that sympathetic response. So he got interested. I showed him the data. We got um, uh, safety approvals for our sensors, made a whole bunch more, got through the Institute Review Board of the hospital, you know, all the safety check stuff, enrolled 90 children who are all candidates for brain surgery. They all have seizures that were not stopped by medications. And while they were in the hospital being observed with EEG on their scalp, ECG on their chest, um, we added EDA, electrodermal activity, on their wrists. And we found that 100% of the grand mal seizures had a significant response on the wrist. How And how soon close to the actual yeah. event was it? Now, it turns out that you know when people write diary times at home, they may not coincide exactly with the sensor time. When we had precisely synchronized data in the hospital, we are not getting the response on the wrist far in advance of the seizure. We're usually mm-hmm. getting it at the same time that it's starting in the brain. But if they catch, if they, uh, but if you can catch it faster, right. yes. In fact, sometimes, well, you know what, quite all, what can happen is the person has a seizure and nobody knows. So we can catch it. We can bring somebody to their aid right away by issuing an alert. Mm-hmm. And it turns out that most deaths from seizures are happen. First of all, most seizures do not cause death, fortunately. Um, but seizures cause more deaths than house fires right. and AIDS and SIDS. It's actually much more common than is reported. They think. Um, and it turns out when you look at the cases where the deaths were um, were observed, like the patient happened to be wearing an EEG while they were at home or in the hospital, and nobody was there at the moment they died, but they read the electrical recordings later. In 100% of the cases where the patient died, 
there was a biomarker before where the cortical brain waves were suppressed and respiration stopped before the death. And in those cases, when we, um, when we measure, uh, when we find that happening in our experiments, where fortunately nobody has died, um, we also find it's proportional to the size of the response on the wrist. So did you know at that moment we need to build a company out of this? I knew we needed to get this to patients somehow. Mm -hmm. I didn't know if we, you know, the best way to do that. Um, but I knew we needed to get this to families. If I had a kid with epilepsy, I would absolutely want to have this information, to have these alerts, and to use this as part of understanding if a treatment is helping their seizures get more severe, or helping them get less severe, or if it's causing right. them possibly to get worse. Because each time someone has a seizure, I mean, it's... So there's the potential for brain damage, right. there's potential for injury, and there's the potential for mm -hmm. death. Yeah. And so Empatica has had a very successful crowdfunding campaign. You have, it's its own company. It's spun out. These mm -hmm. are, your, are you selling these now? We are currently selling the um, top-of-the-line devices to researchers that we were making before we got the funding to do a consumer version. Mm -hmm. Consumer versions, it's funny, while they seem like a simpler version, they're actually a lot harder to do at right. scale because there's a lot more work to make something simple yeah. <laughs> than to make it for researchers. So we continue to sell our devices to top scientists and researchers around the world for clinical data, mm -hmm. for studies in epilepsy, autism, PTSD, depression, a whole bunch of conditions now, MS. Um, but we are trying to make a patient-facing version that will issue the alerts and simplify the data for um, regular folks who shouldn't have to uh, be a scientist to you know, benefit from it. And the idea is that it would alert the parents via... An application yes. on their phone. Alert the college roommate, alert the girlfriend, alert the parents, alert the caregiver, alert the babysitter. Alert the physician too? Um, if, so if you choose. If you choose. Um, what will probably happen there, we'll let, it, we'll let patients and their doctor configure it. Mm -hmm. So, for example, if patients being monitored in the hospital, yes, alert medical staff. Um, when they're home, they probably aren't going to be alerting their physician with every seizure. But you can give um, the physician can dictate what instructions should be followed. Right. And you're wearing an eye watch, so I mean, is the idea that uh, I'm wearing an eye watch? What makes you say that? No, that's no. embrace. Everybody <laughs> thinks it's better looking than an eye watch. <laughs> I'm, I'm delighted you confuse that. Yeah, this is embrace. Okay, this it does look similar to it, so I apologize. Uh, but I mean, <laughs> thank you. Is this a technology that um, needs to be a standalone product, or could it, the the technology be embedded into a different product, or in turn, is that sort of a, the business decision that Empatica will make, whether or not they want to be in the yeah. sort of sensor for a sale business or the actual apparel, wearable apparel business? Yeah, it's an interesting challenge because, you know, it's funny. People judge things by how they look, and they seem to think if it looks really medical, it's a better medical device. But we're right. actually making the highest quality medical device and going for FDA clearance and everything. But we're trying to embed it in something that when you – that. Well, I felt like one of the marks of success was when the doctors came up to me at AES, the American Epilepsy Society meeting, and they said, I want one, <laughs> right? That just looks good enough for me to use to tell time, yeah. right? And that's what we want. You know, if you have to wear something all the time, you want to wear it because it looks like who you are in a you know, statement of expression, mm -hmm. not because you have to wear it for some medical reason. So we want to make different colors, different forms. You know, we want to enable an ecosystem where people right. have as much choice about what they wear. 
but deep inside they can you can embed this medical app and nobody nobody needs to know if you're running the seizure detection app or you're just running the you know tell me how my daughter's day at school is app <laughs> right very interesting so uh, what other medical applications do you think you see for this sort of technology i mean you can you can read you know, several vital signs and things like that. But I yeah, think there's uh, yeah. there's always the question of the so what question. I mean... Yeah. One of the things I'm really interested in is, um, and, and it's, you know, you can see why no drug companies want to fund this, um, but when people enter a university or a tough workplace, you know, they're usually strong and they're the person you want to hire and admit and they're, like, brilliant and hardworking. And then they're in, they encounter all these stressors. And they start off as resilient, and hopefully they stay resilient, and they survive the stressors with post-traumatic growth, right? Mm -hmm. But some of them don't. Some of them become very depressed. They fall apart. And in the beginning, they look the same. So what is it that's different there? And with Embrace, we can measure not only extreme changes related to seizures. We can measure day-to-day -day changes related to stress and sleep and physical activity. Mm -hmm. And a person with epilepsy may want to use those to see if it can predict when their clusters of seizures happen. Um, another person might want to just see um, how does it predict their mood? How does it predict if they're staying resilient or if they're starting to get depressed? Right. Um, college student may or may not want to share that with mom or dad, <laughs> but they may want to know it privately, right? And you may yeah. want to share it with some friends who are looking out for each other. Or maybe people who, you know, are I mean, stress is a killer, right? I mean, so maybe people who... We think it affects are, every single major health condition, right? Yeah. You know, you we know it affects behavior change, right? When you're all jazzed and motivated and feeling energized, you're able to exercise and eat right. Yeah. And then when you're tired and you're run down and somebody does something that just completely wrecks your ability to control your schedule and your stress, Just then, part, right? yeah, it's chocolate, it's <laughs> forget the exercise, you know, and, and eat lots of cigarettes and of all crap. the horrible yeah. things that you do, right? Right, right. So maybe it's about helping them recognize that the world, I'm not falling apart, I'm stressed out, and that I need to that's take right. these different things. That's right. So that's sort of the, I guess, is that the great feature of wearables? I mean, like, um, helping us learn and understand yeah, I think the responses that we're doing and correcting our behavior. Absolutely. And I'll have to add, it's a lot more compelling. Like, we all know we should sleep. We all know we should eat right, right? You know, it's like the messages are already there, but why don't we do it? Mm -hmm. And I think there are, uh, it's, while there are a complex set of reasons there, one of them is you don't have a clear image of it really matters for you, right? Like, it matters in the abstract. Yeah, yeah of yeah. course, that's true in general. But I happen to know that I stayed up late, and I did just fine the next day, right? You sure. always hear the guy who's like, well, my dad smoked till he was yeah. 80, and he <laughs> didn't get cancer. So what you really want to know is not what happens for this average people set of people in some study where they threw out all the interesting outliers. <laughs> but you want to know if you're one of the interesting outliers, right? right? Yeah. And now you can get that data and you can see, you know, wow, this really impacts me. Like I know personally, as I've seen my data when I travel or stay up late, you know, I'm usually really good with a regular schedule and I think that's important um, for building resilience. Uh, but let's say my husband's out of town and I decide I'm going to stay up till three working on something I'm really interested in. Right. I look at my data and it's screwed up for three days. Mm. And suddenly I have this picture of it in my head. And when, when I get another chance at that and Helps my usual there. bedtime rolls around and I think I might stay up late and suddenly I remember that image of, oh my gosh, is it really worth three days of screwed up, yeah. you know, Helps um, you make better decisions. Right. 
Are how I mean, are the in, in your interact? Are you interacting with big medical technology companies? Are they interested in the applications? Mostly staying away from them because right <laughs> right. they could gobble us up. Um, we uh, I, we want to do this in a way that's different than what's been done before. Mm-hmm. Um, with all due respect for the great med tech that's out there, most of it is stigmatizing. It looks medical. Yeah. Um, we want to have all that quality that they have, but we don't want it to look medical. Mm-hmm. Um, we want to create an experience that makes you not feel like a patient, but feel like a more intelligent, in-control human being, whether it's controlling your seizures better or having better control over your stress. Mm-hmm. And you said the Embrace watch, or the Embrace—it's a watch too, as well. Mm-hmm. Yep. This is going through the FDA right now. Yes. Since yeah, we're in, seeking five well, clearance. Yeah, we're in the middle of the CE medical, and then the in preparing the FDA filing. Okay. That's have you checked your <laughs> your team's responses when they do with the FDA? And that's a hard. And that's a that's a we, we've, we've measured responses continuously. <laughs> yeah, actually, my skin conductance is going up right now as you, as you mentioned. I can feel it. I have biofeedback on it inadvertently. Right. It's actually kind of interesting. You can learn what it feels like when your skin conductance goes up. Yeah. And actually, we think that has applications, too. There have been two studies in epilepsy showing up to 49% seizure frequency reduction when people biofeedbacked on their electrodermal activity, wow. which is radical, right? That's as big yeah. as the cannabinoid you know, medical marijuana mm-hmm. results that, that they're touting, except that there's a drug company pushing right. a lot of money into making sure everybody hears about that, whereas the biofeedback's just these little poor scientists. You know? So, you, uh, I mean... It's always a crapshoot as to when you hear from the FDA in terms of whether or not you've been cleared. But, I mean, has the process been smooth from your perspective, or is that more uh, your company? I mean, so far, you know, the steps of, you know, biocompatibility and safety and manufacturing documentation all, um, honestly, they're kind of a pain in the rear, but it's Mm -hmm. good to, you know, it's good to get all your ducks in a row, double-check everything, make sure that every procedure is as high quality as we can possibly do, because that's what people deserve, right? Yeah. You want, you know, no technology is going to be perfect. Um, you know, my nightmare is it's not going to work sometime when it needs to work. Yeah. Um, but we want to make sure that we've done absolutely everything we can to make sure that it has the best possible chance of, mm-hmm. of working. Just, just really quickly, back to the wearables, do you, do you think that the, the, the wrist is really probably the most effective place oh. to, to do it because people are we so used to watches. We use the leg, too. Okay, yeah, leg. We, we have a sensor for the leg also. It, it depends on the person. Mm-hmm. We've worked a lot with kids on the autism spectrum, some of whom can wear something on the wrist, some of whom are extremely distracted by anything they can see, right. and they will pull things off their wrist, and the wrist will not work for them. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, it's about respecting people's feelings. So if you, know, if you have to clamp it to somebody to get them to wear it, that's not respecting their feelings, right? right? So we want to offer different versions so that people can find something that's comfortable for them. And we've had kids and also vets with PTSD who didn't want to wear something on their wrist um, comfortably wear it on the ankle. And we've gotten good data on the ankle. Interesting. How about jewelry? you ever see uh, jewelry becoming a good... Uh, oh, yeah. We've built lots of jewelry. We've built and... earrings and rings and bracelets and... Um, you know, and undergarments and all kinds of stuff with sensors in them. We've, we've done a lot. Yeah. It's, it's sort of like a, a mood ring that actually works, right? Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> it's not just a temperature sensor, although we do have a temperature sensor in here. Actually, that's another intriguing frontier of research. A lot of rare epilepsies and other conditions um, like MS um, have uh, temperature dysregulation and variations mm-hmm. that have really not been studied much, um, and hot flashes. And we get a nice signature with that, and we can measure the temperature. So people can start to quantify 
when those events are happening too and see if they could figure out how to prevent them. It's it's really interesting journey you've taken here. Did you ever see this? No, I never saw this coming. I, you know, again, I thought the sensor was broken the first time I saw this funny, bizarre peak in the data. Yeah, it seems like Empatica has the potential to really make a a, a large-scale difference. I hope so. You know, we we have a a lot of really smart, hardworking engineers who want to do something good for the world. Mm -hmm. And it's it's interesting. I I really admire, um, you know, our CEO and team for choosing a market that, uh, from a business standpoint, it's not the biggest money-making market. Um, but it, we think it's the biggest market in terms of saving lives and having impact on the quality of life for many people who you know does, who we can really solve these problems for. So we are uh, really excited. Um, actually, seizures, um, unexplained death after seizure, is the number two cause of years of potential life lost after stroke for neurological disorders. So there are a lot of people whose lives are being cut short from something that we think is completely preventable, or at least preventable in you know probably more than ninety percent of the cases. That's that's great, and I wish you a ton of luck getting that through the FDA. And I, Thank you. Yeah, we're we're uh, doing the highest quality device we can. That's great. Well, thank you so much. This has been fascinating. Thank you. Thanks, Thanks. for your interest and for helping communicate this. Absolutely. Mm-hmm.